Hi, this is Ines, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's Sunday, October 29th, and this is your Sunday sermon. We're starting a brand new three-part sermon series called What Jesus Wants for You, and it centers on Jesus' prayer in John 17. Today in part one, we're going to be looking at John 17 verses 1 to 5, and we're going to talk about the glory of a God-driven life. But before we do, let's take a moment and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we worship you, we adore you, we say thank you, Lord, for another day. Lord, this is going to be exciting to look at this amazing prayer. Come and teach us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen and Amen. There are some 650 prayers recorded in the Bible, but none match the splendor and majesty of this one. And I believe it is one of the longest, if not the longest, recorded prayer in Scripture. This is truly the Lord's Prayer because it's prayed by Jesus. The other prayer in Matthew 6, what most people call the Lord's Prayer, yes, it was prayed by Jesus, no doubt about it, but it was designed to show the disciples how to pray, and so it would be more appropriate to call it the Disciples' Prayer or the Model Prayer. Jesus also used this prayer out loud. He prayed this prayer out loud for the benefit of others. We see this in John 11:42 when he prayed to his Father, You always hear me but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. The setting for this prayer in John 17 comes right after Jesus finishes his final instructions to the disciples and before he is betrayed, arrested, and crucified. In chapters 13 through 16, Jesus talked with his followers about a variety of things, all in anticipation and preparation for this prayer where Jesus talks now to his father. I'm sure we've all experienced the agony of unanswered prayer. That reminds me of the preacher's five-year-old daughter who noticed that her father always paused and bowed his head for a moment before starting his sermon. One day she asked him why. Happy that his daughter was so observant, he began, Well, honey, I'm asking the Lord to help me preach a good sermon, to which she replied, Then how come he doesn't answer your prayers? Folks, when Jesus prayed, his requests were always granted. Let me ask you, do you need to revitalize your prayer life? Do you want to have a vibrant prayer life? Open your Bibles or Bible apps to John 17. We're going to look at the first five verses because here we're going to draw out some of the prayer principles that if followed can, I believe, truly revitalize your prayer life. And in doing so, we're also going to see how Jesus lived the glory of a God-driven life and how you can too. But before we do that, Listen, if you will, with reverence and awe to these verses, verses 1 through 5. After Jesus said this, he looked up toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The first prayer principle we're going to talk about is this. Consider changing your prayer posture. Look at the opening words of verse 1. 
after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Granted, there are times when you and I should pray with our heads down, like the man who cried out for mercy in Luke 18, verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. But there are other ways to pray as well. Moses raised his hands, Daniel knelt, and others bowed, and some fell on their faces. While there are many postures for prayer in the Bible, Jesus liked to look up when he prayed. This might feel awkward or even odd for us because we've been taught to bow our heads and close our eyes. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we can look up because we have been justified and now enjoy a righteous standing before God because of what Christ has done for us. Psalm 123, 1 says, I lift up my eyes to you, O God, enthroned in heaven. Secondly, the second prayer point in this opening verses, call out to God by name. God goes by many different names in scripture, but the favorite one that Jesus used was Father. As I was reminded a couple of weeks ago, we can call out to him as Father only when we're his children. In this prayer alone, the name Father is used six different times. A little while back, I was talking to some folks at church about possible sermon topics. There were some really good suggestions, but there was one in particular that stood out. It was about praying for needs as a church and equipping the body to continue that prayer through the week. That really hit a nerve inside me. I realized that we do pray during our church service, and we do send out the email prayer chain, but generally, we don't pray together at church. In commenting on John 17, one person has said, so let us learn from our chapter at least this, to pray. So that said, I'm going to pause the preaching right now and transition to a time of prayer, and I'd like us to break our time into three phases. For you who are listening or watching this recording, I've included for you some information in the comments section below the description of how you can participate. First of all, we're going to talk about the names of God. There's a list in your comment section here today below the description, as I said. Now, let me say up front, this is not an exhaustive list of God's names and or titles, as there are reportedly 967 names and titles of God in the Bible. But on this list, there are some of God's names and titles, and we're going to use that as a tool right now. So I'd like you to go through the list and pray silently as many of those names back to God as you can right now. You can pause the video and we'll be back for phase two. Welcome back to phase two. For this next phase, we're going to pray together. Now, I've included this prayer below the names of God in the comments section of this recording for you to follow along as well. Again, you can pause the video and have a moment and pray that prayer. And then we'll be back with phase three. Welcome back to phase three. Now, I'd like to pray for you, church, wherever you are today. I'd like to pray for you. And I'm going to use as a guideline the first five verses of John 17. Thank you, Father, that your glorious plan and purpose was for Jesus to go to the cross and suffer humiliation, pain, and bitter agony so that we might be redeemed by his blood and share in the riches of his grace. Thank you, God, that we're in Christ and that he is our Lord and Savior. Thank you that he paid the price for our sin and that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Lord God, thank you, too, for the new life we have in Christ when we trusted him as Savior. Thank you for the eternal life that is already ours through Christ. May we know you more and more, and may we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, 
What magnificent grace that Christ should set aside his glory and live his life as a man. What amazing love that he would die a cruel death for us and rise again so that by faith in him, we might have eternal life. Lord God, how we praise and thank you for giving your son to be the atonement for our sins. Thank you that Jesus was willing to give up his honor and glory to be born into a race of sinners so that all who trust in him might not be condemned, but live with him in everlasting glory. He alone is worthy of our grateful thanks, for to him belongs all honor, glory, praise, and power, might, majesty, dominion, and thanks forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. R.C. Sproul summarized John Calvin's understanding of prayer by saying this, The chief rule of prayer is to remember who God is and to remember who we are. If we remember those two things, our prayers will always and ever be marked by adoration and confession. By the way, that list is designed for you to use as a tool for you and your family so that you can grow in your appreciation for the expansiveness of God's character. I think you'll find that just going through these names and attributes will be a good prelude to your prayer time. The third prayer principle is this, align yourself with God's timetable. How many of you like daylight savings time? How many of you feel the effects of that lost hour of sleep? We see how God's redemptive calendar has unfolded in the next phrase of verse 1 where it says, The time has come. Our timing is not always God's timing, is it? If you're like me, you want things to happen according to your calendar and your clock. I take great comfort in knowing that God has a time in which he accomplishes his activities. And as someone has once said, he's never late and seldom early because he's always on time. I'm reminded of what Genesis 21 verse 2 says. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Let's take a walk through some Bible passages that show how God's countdown clock moved closer to the exact time that his son was scheduled to die on the cross. This helps us to see that God is writing history. He's doing what he planned to do a long time ago. Jesus was born on time. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son. His mother couldn't change that time. When Jesus was at a wedding reception and the wine had run out, Mary wanted Jesus to do something about it. Check out what Jesus says in John 2, 4. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. No one could kill him before his time. Look at John 7, 30. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. The death of Jesus was scheduled, not an accident. Jesus was not killed against his will because he came in order to die and thus bring glory to the Father. We see this expressed the night before the triumphal entry in John 12, 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And when the hour came, it couldn't be changed. Jesus said this to those who had come to arrest him in Luke 22, verse 53. Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Beloved, are you struggling with God's timing today? Then line yourself up with his calendar and his clock. Prayer principle number four is to go after God's glory. We see this in the last part of verse one. It says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Drop down to verses four and five. Verse four says, I have brought you glory. And verse five says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had. 
This is really what Christ's life was all about and should be our only aim as well. Let me ask you some questions. What is it that drives your life? Is it success, fear, work, family, money, possessions, recreation, guilt, the need for approval, resentment, anger, materialism, sports? I want to propose that there should be only one thing that drives our life, and that's the glory of God. Here's what I want us to hold on to today, and every day for that matter. Live the glory of a God-driven life. Or to say it another way, the greatest good we can do is to always seek God's glory. Friends, you and I exist for one primary purpose, and that is to give glory to God. The word glory is one of those religious words that we use often, but we may not know what it really means. Let me take a shot at explaining it to you. It literally means to be heavy or weighty, and has to do with reputation, fame, splendor, and or prestige. It's also related to the word magnify, which means that when we give God glory, we're really helping people see how big and beautiful he really is. The opposite of giving glory to God is selfishness. If I'm interested in taking credit or focusing just on myself, then God doesn't get the glory. According to Isaiah 42 verse 8, God is not interested in sharing his glory with others. It says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else. Isaiah 48 11 says, I will rescue you for my sake. Yes, for my own sake. I will not let my reputation be tarnished and I will not share my glory with idols. The Greeks equated glory with opinion. When someone had a higher opinion of someone, they were giving him or her glory. The Hebrews, on the other hand, would think of the brilliance of God's Shekinah glory as the sum of all his attributes. To put it all together, to give God glory means that our opinion of him is heavy and weighty and he is brilliant in his beauty. One thing to keep in mind is that God already has glory innately. We simply acknowledge and magnify what he already has. Charles Ryrie puts it this way, God's glory is his reputation. To live for God's glory means to live so that God's reputation is enhanced, in other words, heightened in quality and quantity and not diminished in any way. I read part of a sermon written by Thomas Watson, a Puritan from the 1600s this week. I want to share some of it with you because it's helpful. In answering the question, how shall we know when we aim at God's glory, Watson offered three answers. Number one, when we prefer God's glory over other things. Number two, when we are content that God's will should take place, though it may cross ours. And number three, when we are content to be outshined by others in gifts and esteem so that his glory may be increased. To borrow from Watson, our role then is to respond with appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. In particular, when people look at us, they should see the weightiness and beauty of God on full display in our lives because Colossians 1.16 says that we have been created by God and for God. One clue that we care about God's glory is when we can say along with Isaiah 26.8, our heart's desire is to glorify your name. I pray that I can live out the truth of Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory. Prayer principle number five is to embrace eternal life. Take a look at verses two and three, where Jesus defines eternal life for us, which is actually the only specific definition found in the Bible. This is what it says. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life 
that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Simply put, eternal life is defined as a relationship of knowing, which is both intellectual and experiential. It's also in the present tense, which means we should keep on knowing. There are two different words for the word know, K-N-O-W in the Greek. One has to do with observation and the other has to do with an active relationship. It's the second one that's in mind here. Too many Americans have made observations about God, but they've never encountered him in a personal relationship through his son, Jesus Christ. For many years, as churches have grown, some have established multi-site campuses. And through technology, there would be a live stream of a pastor doing the preaching, but the pastor would actually be present somewhere else. It makes me wonder. Sometimes I think that technology makes things a little impersonal. Real fellowship requires interaction between believers. Speaking for myself, I need social interaction with live people. Friend, a relationship with God the Father through the sacrificial death of his son is designed to be personal, but you must receive him into your life in order to experience eternal life. You see, eternal life is not just quantitative, meaning that it will last forever. It is also qualitative. When we have a relationship of knowing, you and I can experience abundance right now. Do you know that it's possible to be religious and yet never have a relationship with God? Flip back to John chapter 8, verse 55, where Jesus says, But you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. But I do know him, and I obey him. And even close proximity to the person of Christ does not guarantee that you know him personally. We see this in tough words that Jesus had for one of his own disciples in John 14, 9. I have been with you all this time, Philip and yet you still don't know who I am? There's a point in which propositional truth must become personal truth. Have you entered into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ? If you have, are you growing in your knowledge of him? Hosea chapter 6 verse 3 says, Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. The sixth prayer principle is this, rest in his finished work. I talked to someone earlier in the week who told me that she had to keep trying and working in order for God to accept her. I gently responded, that's not true. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is complete and totally finished. Look at verse 4. It says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Right before Jesus died, he cried out in John 19 verse 30, it is finished, which means that the debt has been paid, the mission has been accomplished. Jesus is obviously looking ahead a few hours to the finished work on the cross, but I think his words completing the work refer to something else very significant. Jesus' strategy for reaching the world was to pour himself into people. People were more important than programs. And finally, prayer principle number seven is gaze into the glory to come. In verse five, Jesus can't wait to go back to the glory he had with the Father before he voluntarily laid it aside to come to earth and then die for our sins. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus is praying here for full restoration of his pre-incarnate glory and fellowship. The cross is the way home to the Father, the gateway to glory, where Jesus will be restored to the full blazing glory that he knew before he humbled himself. Friends, if you know Jesus Christ relationally, there is glory to come for you as well. Romans 8.18 says, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Amen to that. 
So real quickly, let's review those seven principles of prayer. Number one, consider changing your prayer posture. Number two, call out to God by name. Number three, align yourself with God's timetable. Number four, go after God's glory. Number five, embrace eternal life. Number six, rest in his finished work. And number seven, gaze into the glory to come. Beloved, we should work at doing everything for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? The glory of God. This means that it's not just church stuff, but everything. How you do your job. How you interact with people you disagree with. How you treat your spouse. How you talk to your kids. How you talk to your parents. How you spend your free time. I came across a really cool phrase from another pastor I want to share with you. He wrote, Instead of just living for TGIF, let's instead develop a TGBTG mindset. To God be the glory. I hear people say it all the time that they're just living for the weekend. It's time for us to start living for his glory. Is there anything you're doing right now that does not bring glory to God? Have you said anything to someone that does not bring glory to God? If so, confess it as sin and ask him to help you turn it around for the glory of God. Here's a good question to ask when you're faced with a decision. Can I do this activity or say what I plan to say to the glory of God? If you can't do something for God's glory, then beloved, you shouldn't do it. It's impossible to live for the glory of God without complete surrender, declaring him sovereign over every area of our lives. Have you ever surrendered to Christ, my friends? Is there something that you're holding back? In his book, It's Not About Me, Max Licato writes that we live in a me-centric world and that everything revolves around my happiness, my wants, my pleasure, me. Up until 450 years ago, everybody believed that the universe and the sun and the planets revolved around the earth. Then in 1543, Copernicus told them that the earth wasn't the center of the universe. 50 years later, Galileo said the planets revolved around the sun. They were so opposed to the idea that they threw him in prison and kicked him out of the church. The very idea that we weren't the center of the universe was unthinkable, Lakato writes. Beloved, God has a very important lesson in all of this. The world does not revolve around you or me. God's priority is not your comfort, happiness, or pleasure. The truth is, it's not about you or me at all. It's all about God and his glory. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.